0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is where we are this morning. And as you're finding that, if you don't have a Bible, you can... um, borrow one of the Bibles. In fact, take one of the Bibles that you you can find in the rack in front of you. And if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find Hebrews 2 on one of the page numbers that's listed there above. And, And as I just mentioned, if you don't own a Bible, let that be our gift to you. If you're new or visiting with us, we've been working through the New Testament letter of Romans. And we've taken a short break from that. And we're going to do some standalone messages from now until the end of the year. And then In January, we're going to pick back up where we left off in Romans, beginning in Romans chapter 7. So I'm really looking forward to that. But for the next few weeks, we are going to consider and stare at some standalone passages in the New Testament about the incarnation, the fact that God became man through His Son Jesus. God the Son became man. We believe some, and we live in a world that is full of incredible things. Jennifer and I have been gone these past two weeks. We've been in China visiting our oldest son, and we had a wonderful trip there. So many of you have asked how it was. We, we just had a great time visiting our oldest son who was there in Beijing teaching English at a Christian school there. It's kind of an underground Christian school, and he's doing wonderful, wonderfully there, and we're so proud of him. It was wonderful. But just to think about that, you know, one day we were in Columbus, Georgia, and then we got in a metal tube and it like jet propulsion. I mean, I, under, I, I guess you could draw it out for me on a you know, physics, but that metal tube got in the air for like 14 hours and eventually it landed in Beijing, China. That's incredible. And we just all kind of act like it's no big deal. And then when I'm in Beijing, China, um, I our sleep schedule was off, and I was woken up in the middle of the night, like the Saturday of the SEC championship game. And so I have a little, another little piece of metal, and I'm texting Robert Ward, asking him for updates on the game. And the things that I'm putting into this little piece of metal or plastic are somehow going up in the air landing into Robert's little metal plastic thing. And then he's, we're communicating. Friends, that's incredible. And then, yesterday in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Army (laughs) beat Navy for the second year. (laughs) In a row. Now, back in my day that wasn't so incredible, but now, that's incredible that's incredible man the sun is brighter the birds sound better (laughs) but the fact that god became a man nothing's more incredible in fact one noted historic theologian j.i packer he's a british man in his late 90s coming to the end of his life says in his book knowing god that the incarnation, that there's nothing in the land of fiction in human stories that even approaches the wonder of the reality of the incarnation. And this text this morning that we're going to look at is just a standalone passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18 gives us a picture. It teaches us about this glorious, incredible truth. So I'm going to read it. All the way through, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to just kind of peel it back and work our way through that. So let me read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Now, just a little background on Hebrews. Hebrews, we're not sure who the writer of Hebrews is. It's the one book in the New Testament that we're not exactly sure who the author is. But we do know that he is writing to a group of Hebrew Christians. So in other words, people who were very likely mostly ethnically Jews who had converted and trusted in Christ... They had believed the Messiah, and now they were under persecution. They were being ostracized, uh, in some cases, even physically persecuted for their faith. And they were thinking about going back to their old ways. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is really writing to them, encouraging about them about the superiority. Of Christ over and against the Old Testament, over and against Moses, how he is the fulfillment of these things. So it's a really, it's an encouragement to a persecuted people. Uh, one day we'll, we'll go through Hebrews all together, and it's a beautiful letter. It's a really, it's an incredible letter that really, really ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament, gives us a kind of picture of the Old Testament sacrifices and how they're fulfilled in Christ. But it's an encouragement to, to uh, anxious Christians. And, and the truth of the incarnation should be a great encouragement to us today, too, as we live in an anxious world. So let me, let me read Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. (laughs) So, what a passage. Let's pray. Father, as as we peel back this passage and attempt to... Explain it and understand it and respond to it. I pray that you would help us. Lord, what a privilege it is to, to gather, to sing freely. This is not a show. This is not a production. We're not trying to impress anybody. We just we need to hear from you. You are the God of the universe. You are the Alpha and the Omega. Everything exists for you. You are so transcendent and above all. But yet you are imminent, you're here, you're with us, and you have condescended to to make yourself known to us through your son and through the word that you have given us, written by your Holy Spirit, delivered through your people through the centuries, and you've preserved it and you've allowed it to be translated faithfully into our language so that we can understand it. What a grace that is. And, and we come now not to just do religious things on Sunday morning in the south, but we come to meet you in your word. We need to hear from you. You, you. In you is life and breath and being, God. You sustain us by the power of your word. And so meet us in your word. There are people in this room that need to be encouraged and And some that need to be rebuked and humbled. And others that need the scales to fall from their eyes. And to see Jesus for the first time. There's a thousand things that need to happen in this room. Things that we know about and things that we're not even aware of. And Lord, we're just dependent. We're needy. Help us. Meet us. Meet us, Lord. Do wonderful things as we stare at your word, I pray. And do all of this, Lord, in spite of me. For the glory of your name and for the good of your people, for the joy of our souls, for the salvation of the lost, meet us in your word. Show us our merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh. It's in his name we pray, amen. So here's the question I want us to just frame our time in this passage with, and it is this, why? Did God the Son become man? That's, that's the, the reality of the incarnation, that Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, preexistent with God, no beginning, no end. Jesus was not created, unlike some modern-day cults would have you believe. He is eternally God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this triune, three in one, forever existing, forever will be, always in control, Jesus, the Son of God, becomes a man in time. And why? Why did he do this? Well, we could spend the rest of our lives plumbing the Bible to answer that question. But I think in this passage, we have some reasons why, just several reasons why. So let's look again at verse 10, and we'll just peel our way through it. Verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he, I think that's speaking of God, the Father here, who's planning, and orchestrating the salvation of his people, that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, so I think it's God acting on Jesus, God the Father acting on God the Son, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So that's a weighty verse. We, we won't consider everything that I think it's saying, but, but I think that it does point us in this direction. That The first thing that I want to say about why did God the Son become man is this. And it is that, that Jesus became a man, one, to accomplish the Father's will. So do you see this here? We have God the Father... For whom and by whom all things exist, accomplishing something in Jesus the Son, God the Son. And what is he accomplishing? He is making the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, that's a tricky phrase. That's, I don't think that means, clearly, as we take it in context with the rest of the Bible, that Jesus wasn't perfect and somehow had to, you know, through his human life, become perfect. Clearly, that's not the case. I think that would contradict a lot of the rest of the Bible. No, Jesus is perfect, always has been, always was, and always will be. I think what the language there is is pointing us to is that although Jesus is perfect, and although he has always been fully God, he became a man that his earthly life, in his earthly life, he, to accomplish our salvation actually had to live his human life and endure the suffering that he endured, resist the temptation to sin, and actually accomplish in time the very things that God had before the foundations of the world deemed to be the way through which he would bring salvation. So, do you see that? It's not that Jesus became something that he wasn't in that phrase. It's that Jesus, in his earthly life, actually accomplished it. He... he, Became perfect. He finished the work that the Father had ordained for him before the foundations of the earth through his earthly, real human life, suffering, and victorious resurrection. And so I just want us to see here before we move on that all, all of this is happening according to God's will. And we should, I know that this comes up a lot here, and, and I say this a lot, but I think the Bible says it a lot, and I think we need to hear it a lot. And, and it's that. that This just points us to this truth that God is in control of all things. If before the foundations of the earth, before the fall even happened, God has determined to send his son to the earth to die and suffer and rise again and triumph over evil that hasn't even been created yet, it should give us this sense that God who's planning for the evil which hasn't even reared its ugly head yet and defeating this evil through Jesus' work on the cross, it should sort of cause us to step back and say maybe, just maybe, God has this whole system rigged because he does. And so... If he's, if he's rigged that big system, he, he's got my life rigged. He, he's, he's in control of all things. And that's that's just one thing we can take away from this just this verse that Jesus has come to accomplish the Father's will. The, the Father's will, God's will, is not, un, not changing. It's not reactive. It's set in eternity past. And Jesus has accomplished it, and he accomplished it through just one other little thing I think we can apply to our lives through this, is that Jesus does all this through suffering. And I think that we, should, as his followers, as his people, should, should expect suffering in this, in this life. Listen to what, what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses, starting in verse 12. He says, considering that Jesus has suffered for us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you Let those who suffer, this is a really important phrase, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering is part of the Christian life, and we should not be surprised by it. In fact, just that little paragraph right there, if maybe you are prone to buy into the false prosperity gospel, kind of a health and wealth gospel, it says that if you have enough faith, everything will go okay for you. Um, I, I don't know, they, they, maybe their Bibles didn't print that paragraph. But that, that that paragraph right there should just destroy that notion, shouldn't it? I was really chastened when we were in China meeting with just these people that our son works with. And there's this new chairman, this new president that was um, elected, I guess, whatever you want to call it, in China. And he's kind of a more of a hardline guy, sort of cracking the whip a little bit on Christians and just some of the fraud and uh, the, the just the, uh, the corruption that goes on in China. So in some ways he's good, but in other ways he's making it, I think more difficult for Christians. And we were over at different people's houses for dinner. Some, some of these parents of the students that our son teaches and some of them are Christians. One of them in particular was a pastor of an underground church. And he was just asking me uh, through a translator, um, just, just about life, pastoring in the United States, and I was, just, I was just really chastened as I listened to this brother. And, you know, they're asking us about the political situation in the United States, and I'm like, well, yeah, it's, I mean, I just went like, yeah, it's so rough, and I was like, oh, I'm talking to a Chinese Christian. And, you know, we talk about our political woes, and it's, I could almost sort of feel them saying, yeah, that's, that's cute and then he was asking me about what the greatest struggle was of pastoring in America and i just I just kind of fumbled around with an answer like uh yeah okay. i think i kind of arrived at this like part of the problem is is we're so we're so comfortable and so prosperous that i think it lulls us to sleep and 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 maybe it's a, it's a kind of it's kind of a curse on us. It's not a blessing. Maybe, it's, maybe, maybe for much of the American church, God has sort of given us over to ourselves. And what we think is God's blessing is it really just him just leaving us to our own devices. And someday, many, many people will think that they knew Jesus and they'll stand before him. And he'll say, I never knew you depart from me. As I'm sitting across from this brother who has to meet in secret with his church for fear of real persecution... Friends, all, all, whatever we're facing, Jesus suffered. We will suffer, and it's all in some strange, beautiful way, according to God's will. We should take heart in that. Let's keep reading, verse eleven. For he who sanctifies, meaning Jesus, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. So it means that Jesus and the people that he sanctifies have one source. In other words, human flesh. That's the beauty, the mystery, the glory of the incarnation, that God became man. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. What a sentence. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his family. Saying, and here the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 22 in a portion of Isaiah chapter 8. He says, saying, I will tell, this is, so this is Jesus speaking about us. I will tell of your name to my, I will tell your name, speaking to God about us. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So the writer of Hebrews is attributing those Old Testament passages to Jesus as as kind of foreshadowing truths about what he accomplished in his life. In other words, Jesus is standing before God saying, I will tell of the name of my father to these people that I'm going to call brothers and we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to praise him. So the second truth that I I think we see in this passage of why did God the son become man, and it was number two, to bring God's family together. (laughs) Think about that, that Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters and he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. I mean, most of us, we're getting, we just got through Thanksgiving and we're approaching Christmas and there's just something about the holidays. You just spend a little bit of time with that crazy relative, you know? And Jesus here is not ashamed to call us brothers. The the creator of the universe, with all of our faults, with all of our idiosyncrasies, is calling us brothers. Just just a quick application to how this should land on us, I think. is It just should inform us about how how we treat other people who are different from us, but that are part of the family of God. this This should, I think, chasten us and encourage us to care more about our eternal family than we do about our maybe temporary political family or socioeconomic family. We should not be ashamed to call each other brothers. So politically conservative person that voted for Trump, you should care more about your politically liberal brother or sister that's a Christian than you do about the rest of the people that watch Fox News with you politically liberal person who voted for Hillary Clinton and thinks that Trump is the worst thing in the world, you should care more about your conservative Christian brother or sister than you do about your particular tribe. And, and that's not to say that we don't have discussions and hard conversations. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be st- good stewards of what we consider to be the best public policy for human thriving, all of that. But there just seems to be this this tension that I think has always existed in culture, but we feel it more now. And I think that if... if if we don't just regularly beat this truth into our hearts, we will lose our voice to an onlooking world. And we will say, actually, that the Christian life is more aligned with this political thing or that political thing rather than the prophetic word of God, which calls us above all those things. So we should be careful about what we post on Facebook we should be careful about what we say about other groups we we should just be careful about our assumptions Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and just even our life at Crosspoint, I mean, I think one of the things that's so beautiful about Crosspoint, we've been a church now for 12 and a half years, and this spring we will celebrate our 13th anniversary as a church, and God has been abundantly gracious to us, and Lord willing, we'll send out a group of people to plant another church that will be a wonderful gospel-saturated community in our city for the work of the gospel, and, and there's this, I think there's this wonderful feeling here at Crosspoint, a kind of warm, familial feeling, which is great, but with With families, even that are close and good and healthy, they have to guard themselves against being insular. And just being satisfied with being part of a a neat place. And so let's just remember, let's just have our head on a swivel. Each time we come into this building, each time we gather, let's just not sit by the people that we always sit by or talk to the people that we always talk to. But let's have our head on a swivel for those that God may be bringing in to to be his brothers, to be Jesus' brothers and sisters. And let's be part of the means of God's grace by which we are used by him to bring God's family together. So here's an assignment before you leave this room today. Man, just, just find somebody that you don't know. Somebody that maybe walked into this room and they, they just, nobody said hello to them, not because of any intentional thing. Nobody, nobody has any bad intentions, I don't think. But maybe just somebody's here and they feel lonely and they're intimidated by this crowd and it took a lot for them to get here. And maybe if they leave this building without somebody just kind of giving them a hug. And, and, and now, if you're a young lieutenant or a young soldier and it's a good-looking girl that you want to... No, no I'm not talking about that. <laughs> but maybe if somebody didn't, didn't just kind of come up to them and say, Hey, what's your name? I haven't, haven't met you before. Then, then potentially they could leave this place. And, and because of the way we just didn't have a, our head on a swivel... Just something doesn't connect with them, and and who knows where they may go from there. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. That's a wonderful truth. Okay, let's keep going. Verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy. This is speaking about Jesus becoming a real man partaking of the same things that we take in his life, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, as Hebrews 4 says, that through death he might... Man, just just listen to the way the Bible portrays salvation. It's not being helped on how to live a more pragmatic life. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's a sentence. So the third truth that I see in this text is why did God the Son become man is clearly there to destroy the devil and deliver us from slavery. But what what are these verses saying here, verses 14 and 15, which I think are some of the sweetest in the New Testament? It's, It's saying that Jesus... Well, John Owen put it this way. John Owen was a great Puritan writer back in the 1600s. And he wrote a classic book. And just the title of the book is itself a kind of beautiful truth. And here's the title of the book. It is, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And that's really coming from this verse. That Jesus defeats death. Death has died. It was defeated... By the death of Christ, the death of death in the death of Christ. So how does, how does Jesus defeat death by his death? I was thinking about this this week just to give us a kind of illustration or a picture that might, that might help us. Think about, think about God as and clearly he is. He's the author and he's the, he's the, he's the captain of all things. And God has created a world that he has commanded to live and obey him in such a way. And we have not done that. We have willfully obeyed him. And as a consequence to our disobedience, God has has come up with consequences. Those consequences are death. And so he's, think of of it this way. Think of God as like the governor or the captain or the king. And God is constructing a kind of jail. As a punishment for disobedience against his kingship. And think of God creating, making, in fact, this is exactly what's happened. He's created a fallen angel who is the devil to be the kind of jail keeper. And, and that's an assigned position that God has given him. And this jail keeper now has the keys to the prison cell. And he is. Actually, even though he's evil and against God, he's actually carrying out God's will and enacting the punishment that God has ordained through the evil that he wreaks on humanity. So think of him as kind of like the the jailkeeper with with the key. And he is carrying out the sentences that God has deemed would be so through our disobedience to him. And those sentences are just death, separation from God forever. And there's no way that we can pay back our penalty for that sin because our flesh is now fallen. We are unable to make ourselves right with God. And what Jesus has done is that he has become a man. God the Son becomes a man and he lives a perfect life. So where all of us have disobeyed him, Jesus completely obeys God in his earthly life, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, and then willingly lays down his life on the cross to absorb the wrath and the punishment that is ours. And so Jesus, because he's not just a good man, but because he's the perfect man, and because he's the eternal holy son of God, has more than enough holiness to absorb and extinguish the life sentences of all of his people. And so Jesus absorbs the sentence of death for all of us. And so what does he do? He, by his glorious sinless life and victorious resurrection cancels the penalty that is ours. So do you see his death, which was a human death, but a perfect death and a sacrificial death, took our place and canceled our sentences. And so now through his death, He's extinguished the sentence and the very reason that we're in the prison cell. And so Jesus goes down to the jail. He takes the key away from the jailer. So you see, that's how he defeats the devil. The devil, <laughs> no, get this picture. We're in prison and we can't get out. And Jesus commutes, takes, absorbs, extinguishes, satisfies our sentence. And now there is therefore no condemnation. There's no more sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus so through his death, that's, by the way, if you're just here for the first time, it's Christmas time, you're going to check out our church. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the only way that a person can be made right with God. Not through better living, not through trying hard, not through any external effort, but through trusting in the only one who can absorb the penalty and sentence that we all are under and free us from lifelong slavery to sin and punishment. And Jesus does that in his in his in his death and he takes the keys to life and he opens the prison doors and he says to his people come out and all of that could not have happened without him becoming a man and actually living the life that would then absorb the penalty of our sin And rise again victoriously over it. Friends, just a question before we move on. If he has delivered us from death and the devil, then what, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? I mean, this should make you, he just called us his brothers. This should make you a pretty confident little brother, shouldn't it? I had a big brother, I still have a big brother. I've told you many stories about him, most of them about how he made much of my childhood miserable. The Lord actually used him to bring me to faith later on in life, but I remember my brother was a f- senior in high school when I was a freshman, and we went to a big public high school, about 2,000 kids, it was a rough place, um, you know, lots of bad stuff, lots of little gangs and all that kind of stuff, and my brother was the big man on campus. He was the big captain of the football team as a senior, and there was this wall where all the varsity football players would hang out, and I was a little freshman. And he had rules; I was not allowed to approach him. I think it was like a, a hundred foot, like don't even, don't even acknowledge me, <laughs> like when I'm around my guys. And if I'm, if I'm talking to a girl, you do, you just you don't make eye Don't even. I don't know who you are. <laughs> but but there was this kind of understanding that nobody messed with me because. Todd was my big brother. (laughs) So I I was kind of a cocky little freshman, you know, walking around like... (laughs) Like I was doing something when it was just my brother. But similarly, and on a much grander scale, friends, if Jesus is... If the king of the universe is calling us his brothers, and he has destroyed the devil and delivered us from slavery and slung open the prison cell, what... Can we, what should we really be scared of? Nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? God is the one who justifies. In Romans 8, it says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Now He's our big brother. Praise God. Let's keep going. Verse 16, for surely it is... Not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And the offspring of Abraham, I take it, is not necessarily just ethnic Jews. But I think as we'll see when we get back into Romans, in Romans chapter 9 and 11, that it's speaking about those who have faith. All people that have faith, he helps believers in him. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This was according to the plan of God. God deemed it to be so. People ask sometimes, Could God have created a universe where Jesus did not have to die on the cross? I I think that's a really arrogant human question. He didn't. He created a universe that was arranged like this. And according to his just holiness, verse 17, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he's like us. He's endured temptation. He's He's faced what we faced, but victoriously in every instance so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This, listen to this next phrase, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now there's that beautiful word propitiation that we've gone over here before on numerous occasions and it bears repeating. When it's there in the text, we need to remind ourselves of it. This word propitiation is such an important word. In the New Testament, this word appears in the original language several times throughout the New Testament. And sometimes over the course of translation history, some people have decided, I think for wrong reasons, to tone this word down a little bit and, and translate it differently with this word expiation. And so, what, what is the difference between propitiation and expiation, which is these two words that sometimes we see this Greek word translated as? Expiation is the mere taking away of sin and punishment, which is clearly something that Jesus does for us. But this word propitiation, which I think is the right word to use for this original language word, is not merely the taking away of sin in an impersonal sense. But it means to satisfy, to not just take away sin, but to satisfy the wrath of God that was coming down on us. And so Jesus has not just died for our sins and taken them away in a kind of general sense. Clearly he's done that. But he has gone further than that because our problem was deeper than that. Our problem isn't just sin. In fact, our problem isn't just the devil. Our problem is a holy God that we have all offended. The one who is carrying out the sentence is not the middle manager devil. It's the triune God. And Jesus has not only removed our sin, but he has, and this is what this word propitiation means, he has satisfied the justice of a holy God. Friends, our greatest need is not merely that we would be delivered from sin, not merely that we would be freed from the devil's clutches, but our greatest need is that we would be right with a holy God. And Jesus has done that through his work on the cross. And he has made us God's children. Just think about that. Salvation is not just a a kind of impersonal transaction. It is is a bringing into the family. In fact, J.I. Packer, who I mentioned at the beginning, wrote about the incarnation that it is the most incredible thing in all, even the world of fiction. There's nothing in the world of fiction that could even compare to it. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says that he could summarize the New Testament in three words. And those three words are adoption through propitiation. In other words, God makes us his children through his wrath-bearing substitute on the cross, bearing the wrath of God against us and turning it into God's favor. And he could do, it had to be like that. He had to be a man. He had to feel what we feel. He had to defeat it in every respect. And as a result, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And I end with verse 18. Well, Did I put number four up there? Yes, to satisfy God's wrath for us. And then verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Last point, number five. Why did God the Son become a man? So that He could help us when we are tempted. How does Jesus help us? My friends, we could spend so much time, but we want, I need to end this. Jesus helps us in so many ways. He, first of all, he, he, he fulfills the new covenant promise in the Old Testament. He gives us a new heart with new desires. So He where we were unable to obey him before in sin. That's what it means to be in prison, in lifelong slavery, to a wicked heart. He enables us with a new heart. That's the mark of salvation. If you don't have new desires to some degree, you don't have a new heart. He gives us a new heart. He gives us his word he, he's preserved this for us. He gives us his spirit that lives in us and leads us. Romans 8, we'll get to that in, in the beginning of the year. And he gives us, he gives us each other. He gives us his people. He gives us the local church to live and do life together in such a way that we help one another when we are tempted. Let me read to you just a few lines out of our our membership covenant that we gather together when we have our member meetings once every other month, which if you're a member of Crosspoint, I want you to I want to encourage you to, to make those a priority in, our, in this upcoming year to come to those. We have six of them a year. If you're, it, it'd be like having a big family dinner and not having everybody there. Just, just come to those. Come on. But listen to some of the things that we recite together in our Crosspoint Church covenant. It says that we will Eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by walking together in love and in the Spirit by putting away all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. In other words, we're going we're gonna to live together as a local church. We're not just going to see church life as showing up for a couple hours on Sunday. But we're going to strive in this busy world to live together and to speak in a way towards one another that builds one another up. We also say this, we will be devoted to one another in brotherly love with humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing one another when necessary. How does Jesus, who is the head of the body, help us when we are tempted? By putting us in the body that, that looks after one another. So, so we, we, we are given this gift called the local church That is the flesh. It's the the means by which verse 18 actually becomes true in our life. A few more sentences. We will seek by God's help to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do this together. And then finally, this sentence. We will not neglect to gather together but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, the faithful observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the loving exercise of church discipline. In other words, we have a responsibility towards one another. To gather regularly, to have our heads on a swivel, to consider others others better than ourselves. And as we do that, as we do this kind of unspectacular, ordinary, at times awkward and uncomfortable life together as Christians, we actually become the embodiment of verse 18. That he helps those who are being tempted through our life together as we bear with one another. And as we just do the hard work of rolling up our sleeves and being Christians in community. And friends, nothing is harder and more awkward and beautiful than that. Because some of us, in fact all of us, are hard to be around. Amen? Amen. Glory. Glory, that's right. And yet, Jesus intends for us to not rush out of here. To right now. Be thinking about somebody that you can go over and bless, invite to lunch, exchange emails with so that you can meet up in the next week, invite to your community group. Get outside of ourselves in such a way that we become this beautiful aroma And then as we live life together, as Megan and Lauren were talking about living life together incarnationally in a community, God uses our incarnational life together to be a witness towards the one and true incarnation, God becoming a man that is the message that the world needs to hear, friends. That's life together. That's the gift that God has given us. Oh, we're so good at this, but oh, we could do so much better. Can't we? Let me pray. Father, as we we think about the truth of the incarnation. May we be emboldened. May we be emboldened. You became a man and you delivered your people from lifelong slavery in our foe, the devil. And more importantly, you delivered us from the wrath to come. You delivered us from yourself, which was our greatest need. And you have brought us into a family and you've given us the great privilege to to, to bear with one another and to to be incarnational with each other so that you would encourage us so that we can live this life in this hard world, that we can hold on to the glory of the gospel and, and, and that we can be a kind of aroma to an onlooking world. What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is. Help us to stop moaning and whining and being selfish and help us to to see the beauty of the incarnation and the life that it calls us to together. And may we lean forward into this, this Advent season. In Jesus' name, amen.